If you have your Bibles, which we hope you do by now, by the way, have I mentioned that you're going to need your Bibles here? <laughs> if you forgot your Bible for some strange reason, they got lost in the airport luggage, I understand that. But uh, if you forgot your Bible, there should be one right in front of you in the back of that pew. We want you in God's Word because God's Word shapes our lives and it shapes redemptive community. Everything we're doing, we're trying to ground it and center it on the Word of God. So please bring your Bibles because I do not put it up on the PowerPoint, not the main text. We're in the midst of a series called Faith That Lives. It's going through James. And we're, uh, last week we started a, a sermon title called Building Faith God's Way. And this is a continuation of that sermon because James continues it. In chapter 1, I want to open up with this poem, and you may have heard it before, it was written a long time ago. I want to read it, and then I'm going to ask you a question. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors, he worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. Now listen, I'm going to say that again. Shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why the dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Now that's a powerful poem. But is it completely true? Can we not in this life know anything of the reason for the trials that we're going through? Can we not in this life know some of why God is allowing us to go through what we're going through? The answer to this is what undergirds James chapter 1 verses 5 through 8. As James gives us another P in the building faith God's way exercise regimen. Let me read this to you. And then we'll begin. If any of you lacks wisdom, verse 5, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. Now, right there, let me stop for just a moment. When you and I are hearing the word of God, when somebody preaches the word of God to you or you read it during the week, what goes through your mind as the word of God comes into your heart? Because this, the Bible says, is living and active, which means that unlike any other book ever written, which is static, once written, it's it, it lies dormant, it can inspire us, a book can stir your heart, but this is the only supernaturally powered book, according to scripture, that is living and active and able to penetrate our hearts. So when God breathed this, he gave of his essence into this so that when we believe it, it has a power to change our lives. So when I'm reading this, my question is, where's it going in your life? Where's it going as it penetrates? Because James says, verse 6, when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. That's the word of God. Now we chew on it. 
And like the Bereans, you say, you know what, I'm not just going to listen to what Pastor Tim says. I'm going to listen with criticism to see if what he's saying is true and applicable to my life. So here we go. Last week, we saw three exercises in verses 2 through 4 that are necessary to build our faith. The first one was a right perspective. You remember, you lead your mind through trials with that word considerate, pure joy, that phrase it means lead your mind with truth through the trial. But secondly, an heroic perseverance. Thirdly, a hopeful perfection. So this week, what we said last week was endurance if we stay under it and not seek the shortcut out of it. If we endure under it, that's what builds maturity in our lives. And the result is perfection or maturity. Perfection's King James, maturity NIV. But there's another P in this program, and it's called a faithful prayer life. Let's remind us ourselves of the context again, because we usually we all we always have to come back to the context. It has a bearing in how we interpret this. Here it is: those who received this letter of James, those who received it. By the way, they would receive a church would receive a letter. And either a copy would be made or that letter would be distributed to other churches. So all the churches scattered were receiving this letter from James. And there were struggling people. They were much tempted. They were severely tried saints of God. And oftentimes they're at the end of the rope. You see, this is what trials do, friends. Trials do this. Difficulties that we go through squeeze like a vice your heart. My heart. And when you squeeze a container and what's in the container comes bubbling out, when we go through trials, you want to know the person for who they really are and watch them go through difficulty because what's really in their heart is going to come out in the way that they live. And so these trials are squeezing them and they're revealing for them, James is revealing for them their redemption that still remains the work that Christ still needs to do in their life. Here it is, quarreling. If you've read through James, you know it. Slandering, judging, jealousy, uh, anger, jealousy over the riches, trying to climb social status, persecution. All of these things these saints were struggling with, and they're at the end of the rope. See, trials are part of our maturing because the Lord uses them to drive you and I deeper in prayer. He may even allow, friend, and I hate to say this, friends, he might even allow you to stay in trials and even intensify trials in your life until you begin doing what Proverbs 2.2 says, turn your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. You see, trials tend to do this if they're working redemptively in our lives, and the trials are turning you and I into a deeper praying, praying Christian. Trials are turning this church into a more deeply praying community. This is the context. And this is why James casts his pastoral net wide and here's how wide it is he says if any that's pretty wide if any of you lacks wisdom he should ask god now i love this phrase he should ask remember i told you there's 54 greek imperatives in this little book of james which are commands they're military commands and this is one of them he should ask it's not an option 
If you're in a trial, ask. It's not advice from James. It's a divine command from God. Friends, when trials come, it's not an option if we feel like we need it. God says, ask, because what we think we can handle it with may not be what God wants to give us to handle it with. So every trial ought to be met with asking, asking for wisdom. Why? Here we go. Number one, if you got your outline in front of you, wisdom is needed for our maturity. Look at this verse again, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. Now, listen, this is so important that we capture this. Trials are redemptive tools How many of you have at least one tool in your possession at your house? Screwdriver, hammer, pliers, channel locks, caulk gun. I used all of them in the last two days, made a mess out of every one of them. Any of us understand tools. We all understand tools. They are tools, trials are, because God's building, listen, wise people. Trials move you and I to a deeper prayer life by calling, when we call out to God for his wisdom. Remember what James just said, verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. Look at verse 5, if anyone lacks. You see how good James is? Remember I told you that James is one of the best written Greek books in all of the New Testament? He's so good at bridging. If you lack comes right after that you trials are, are so that you persevere so that you'll be lacking nothing. But if you do lack anything, James says, then ask. Now, often a person hears this call to maturity and this completeness that James is beckoning us forth to, and the response is, help, who can do this? This is unreasonable, James. Divine help is necessary. It is crucial and it is indispensable. And this help from God comes to you and I in the form of wisdom. If verses 2 and 4 are all about us considering, persevering, and maturing, then 5 through 8 is all about our need for God's assistance in doing so. Wisdom is needed to see... you got to get this, because this, I feel like I might be letting you drift a little bit. Let me pull you back and listen. Wisdom is needed, it's necessary, to see trials the right way in our lives and to respond to trials in a godly manner and to live heroically by enduring under trials without grabbing the shortcut out of it until Christ matures us. That's what wisdom is for. And I'm going to explain that in greater detail. In short, trials move us to ask for God's wisdom, and God loves to get it. But what is wisdom? Friends, you want to know something? Wisdom is one of the least understood words in all of faith, in my opinion. Here's what wisdom is. A, wisdom is not the same as knowledge. Here's our customary prayer. Lord, Please tell me what I need to know in order to make it the right decision. 
See, we've got this idea that wisdom is God supernaturally giving us the knowledge to make the right decision. That's what we think wisdom usually is, or the application of divine knowledge. It's not information. Wisdom is more than that. It's more than getting the facts straight. It's more than just making the right decisions because God's flooded our minds with the right information. God's wisdom enables you and I to do the right thing in the face of moral dilemmas and to interpret life's experiences, get this, in light of eternal values. I'm going to say that again. Biblical wisdom enables you and I to do the right thing in the face of trials and to interpret these trials in light of eternal values. That's part of what biblical wisdom is. I'm going to blow it out for you in the next 10 minutes. In James's letter, wisdom is this. You ready? Here's what you write down. Here's what you pound into your mind as an anchor bolt for faith. Here's what biblical wisdom is. It's the combination of faith and deeds. It is a moral commitment which enables you and I to endure trials with action that is redemptively pleasing to God. You see, wisdom is not just being flooded with information from God to know what the right thing is. It's, given, it's being given knowledge by God so that we can do the right thing. Wisdom isn't complete until wisdom moves in right redemptive action. It's when faith and deeds come together. That's what wisdom is. We separate that out to the faith and we forget the deeds. All of James is about uniting faith and deeds. The entire book, that's its theme. Theologian Ralph Martin said this, I quote, For the Jewish mind, wisdom meant practical righteousness in everyday living. You see, to a Jew, when they would pray for wisdom, they weren't praying for information. They weren't praying for facts so that they can make the right decision. To a Jew, they would pray for wisdom so that they can live in a way that pleases their holy God. Wise people are not those who sit on the mountaintop monasteries giving you out pithy sayings. They are godly believers who live godly lives before their holy, righteous God. So wisdom unites knowledge with righteous living. It's the eternal perspective that brings faith and deeds into a seamless whole. Well, Pastor Tim, you might tell me this. How can you describe wisdom that way? I've never heard it described that way. You know what? Then you haven't read far enough into James. Look what he says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it. Let him show it. Let him demonstrate it. Let him live it. By his good life, by deeds done, and the humility that comes from wisdom. Wisdom is a package deal. It's having the knowledge of God that translates into the actions of God in redemptive living. That's what biblical wisdom is. So James says, ask. Ask God for wisdom. And he will give it to you, but know this, that when you're asking him for wisdom, he's going to give you knowledge of who he is so that you can live it out in the midst of trials. So you can bring faith and deeds together. When you and I pray for wisdom, especially in the midst of trials, we're asking God to unify the truth that we know 
with righteous living. That means when those trials squeeze you and I, there's no complaints. There's no gossiping. There's no spreading out of a negative attitude. When God squeezes us through trials and he allows trials to intensify, we don't go scrambling for whatever else can help us on this earth. We go to God and ask him for wisdom. And God gives us wisdom by reminding us us of his truth so that we can live in peace in the midst of trials and endure them so that it's in our endurance that he can mature us and refine us. See, wisdom shows you and I how God is working redemptively. By the way, redemptive means to free you. That's all that word means. I use it a lot because I think it captures the essence of what God has done from Genesis to Revelation, freeing us from the old nature, free to live in the new nature, pleasing him with peace in our lives. So when God is giving us wisdom, when we pray for it, then he's going, to show, he's going to show us how he's working redemptively in us through those trials so we can be free to live like him, mature and complete. What else is wisdom? Wisdom is a gift that God is waiting for us to ask for. Proverbs 2, 6, for the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. I love James because he teaches theology and how to live it out. Here's what he says about God. Four things. Number one, God is a giving God. Friends, it is God's character to give. God cannot operate against his character. It is who he is. He lives to give. Look what, he, look what the scripture says, John 3, 16. <clears throat> For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Acts 17, 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? This is God. Friends, listen, did you know, did you know that this is one of his attributes? An attribute is what describes the essence of someone. This is an attribute of God to give. Secondly, God gives wisdom generously. I love this because the literal Greek rendering of of who gives generously is this. Let him ask the constantly giving God. That's what it means in the Greek. You should write that down. Let him ask the constantly giving God. That's what it means for God gives generously. This word, this word generously, you know what it means? It carries the idea, I, I absolutely love this. It carries the idea of singleness of heart. That's what it means, to give with singular motive. You see, you and I might write a check out for the offering plate. And we're writing that check out, and part of us is saying, man, I could really use that money. Oh, I don't want to give this week. See, that's double-mindedness. God never does that. God gives without reservation, without wondering if he really wants to give that much. God gives with a singular abandon. He is a constantly giving God. He's ready to pour out wisdom, because that's what James is talking about. Let him ask. He's ready to pour out wisdom into our trial-parched hearts if we just ask. Number three, God's a faultless giver. 
God is a faultless giver. He gives without finding fault. God generously gives without finding fault. Have you ever had somebody repeatedly come to you over and over for help? There's a part of us that begins to be judgmental. There's a part of us that gets critical. God never does. You can come again and again and again and again, and God says, I will give you because I am a giving God. I give generously, and I give without demeaning. I give without finding fault. I give without putting you down. I give without trying to find your faults, all your defects, your imperfections. I give because I love to give. James also says, God is a God of promises. Look what he says, and it will be given to him. That's a promise. It's a promise that we can stake our faith on. God will give wisdom to us when we are going through trials and ask him for it. For him to not do that makes him a liar. God cannot lie. Friends, trials are opportunities. Some are huge, some are small, but they are opportunities to become wise. And to become wise is to live seamlessly between our faith and our deeds. Instead of saying, why me when trials come, asking God for wisdom results in a complete faith that lacks no redemptive action. You want to know how to pray? Here's, I, I think this would be a fantastic way to pray in the midst of trials. God, give me wisdom to discern the situation, withstand the test, and come to maturity. But there's a second point, single-mindedness. Single-mindedness is needed for our maturity. First, we said wisdom is needed for our maturity. Single-mindedness is needed for our maturity. Look at the verses again. When he asks, verse 6, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. You see, James tells us that there's a condition attached there's a condition attached that you and I must see. Now, let me say this really quickly because I think this could get taught in a very uh, unkind, ungracious manner. Every one of us doubt. It is part of being human that once in a while we doubt God. Listen, David doubted, Jeremiah doubted, Elijah doubted. All these great men and women of God all through Scripture wonder, God, are you really going to come through? Are you really going to stay True to your promises. Because I don't understand what's happening. I, don't, I know you're good to Israel, Asaph said, but you're not so good to me. So doubting is part of being human. So this isn't talking about doubting whether or not uh, God is really going to be good to you. It's not, it's not a weak faith kind of doubt. Let me explain what it is. Wisdom is given to those who believe in God's promises to the point that they entrust themselves to the one who gave them. I'm going to explain it. It's a request which takes God at his word. See, James gives this image of being in a boat in the midst of this storm without a rudder of truth. And wherever that wind is blowing, wherever the waves are tossing, that's where the boat goes. It's helpless to govern its own path because there's no truth. There's no clinging to God's promises. That's what James is saying in this imagery. The doubter is one who questions truth, and the result is being blown about and unstable. So the person might be a believer in Jesus, but he is unstable 
and he's doubting, his doubting life means he will get no wisdom to help him handle these trials. His trial will not lead to maturity. Faith believes God at his word. It grabs hold of the rudder of truth and it holds on to God during trials. You see, the truth is that trials are perfecting us. The truth is that God is a gracious, generous, free giver. The truth is that our faith is being strengthened. We're being tested by trials, but when we hold on to his promises, the truth is that when we trust him, we are being matured and completed. You see, it's, that's what faith is. It's holding fast to the promises of God. It's not a weak and faltering faith, and I'm going to explain that. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, here's the interesting thing. I, 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 did I tell you guys you're going to have to really chew this morning? I, did I forget to tell you that? I'm sorry. Get your fork and your knife out for a second, okay? And your mind. Look at verse 4. You see that word perfecting or maturity in verse 4? So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is the word's definition. It means to become single-minded. Where there's no division between faith and deed. There's no division between what you believe and how you live. Those who doubt are double-minded. They receive a request, denied slip from God when they ask of him. Doubting God has less to do with weak faith and more to do with being centered on this world while you're trying to pray to God. God, would you please give me wisdom for this trials while the whole time you're creating your ways out and all your safety plans. The word means to have a divided mind. That's what doubt literally means. It's not connected to the weak faith uh, or none of us would have answers to prayer. It's a mind that's divided between being centered on, on ourselves and centered on God. It is one who tries to trust God's promises but keep their options open. This is all through the Bible. It's divided loyalty. It's to divide our faith from our actions. That's what it means to be double-minded, what it means to doubt. This is what Mark 12, 30. Look at this verse again. This is the center of the law. Love the Lord your God with all. Why does he keep saying that? Because double-mindedness divisions wreck your faith. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You see, double-minded people are centered on this world rather than on eternity. They look for shortcuts out of trials. They, they, they get in a trial. They don't want to persevere. They want the quick way out. Instead of enduring and asking for God's wisdom, they pray. And their prayers are commiserations rather than considerations of joy. Double-minded people back out on God and turn to themselves. They might say they have faith, but trials prove otherwise. You see, the perfect or mature person of verse 4 is a single-minded individual that wisdom helps bring about. See, when you and I pray and we ask God, God, this trial is too big for me. Please give me wisdom. 
It activates God's generous nature to give, and He bestows beyond our imagination wisdom, but not information, not facts to know the right thing to do, but wisdom which brings our faith, what we believe, in unity with the way that we're living so that we are living godly, redemptive lives in the midst of trials. And when we're living those in the midst of trials, enduring, then God is doing His perfect work of maturing us. Isn't that exciting? This is what wisdom means. This is what doubt means. This is what single-mindedness means. This is what maturity means. So wisdom is the knowledge and the understanding of the promises of God's truth in the midst of trials and the adhering to it in redemptive living. Friends, why am I bringing this out so much? You must understand this. Because this is the theme all the way through the entire book. The entire book, James is doing almost one singular thing. He's bringing people who claim to be Christians faith and unity to the way that they live because there's a big, giant schism in their life, in their lives. They're saying they're Christians, but they're living as if they're not. They say they have faith, but there's no deeds to prove it. The community comes together to worship, but they leave to live in the world. And so James wrote this book to bring those two back together and ask for wisdom for God to endure them through their trials and mature them. Let me close with this. How are you and I going to know when we are receiving God's wisdom? You know what? There's a good mark for that. When we persevere in trials in an attitude of joy, because we know God is changing us to be like Christ, so that we can fulfill his redemptive purposes for us, that's when you know God is giving you wisdom. It's marked by joy. 